the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thanks for joining us. Follow us at danproftshow.com is the website. Uh, online, social media, Dan Prof Show, Twitter, Facebook, also uh, at Dan Proft on Twitter, at Proft underscore Dan at Instagram. You know, you can figure it out. Uh, all right, updating uh, all things coronavirus as we have cases uh, now numbering in excess of 1,000 with uh, approaching, well, more than 30 reported dead as a result of coronavirus infection. Uh, the reports that uh, not a lot of Americans have been tested either, so you suspect that the numbers uh, will uh, are already significantly higher and will be revealed to be significantly higher than that. Certainly we have at areas where there has been uh, a particular uh, high incidence of infection, like Seattle, Washington, uh, New Rochelle, New York, the states of emergencies declared by the politicians in those states. Um, but I wanted to start with uh, an interview that uh, Dr. Matthew Binnaker gave on Fox News. He's a virologist at the Mayo Clinic. Uh, here's what he had to say, just sort of assessing state of play right now with coronavirus. When we compare COVID-19 to the two other coronavirus outbreaks over the last two decades, this virus is uh, infecting more people for sure, but the mortality rate uh, seems to be lower. We know that SARS back in 2003 tended to be shed at higher amounts in patients later on in the illness. So by that time, most of those patients were actually in the hospital and controlled when they started to produce more virus. So that allowed for those patients to be isolated and the transmission to be more easily controlled. What we're finding with COVID-19 though, as patients may shed virus in higher amounts earlier in the disease before they see a doctor, before they go to the hospital. So that's why we're seeing more cases. And so I think the best way to kind of paint that picture is to compare COVID-19 to the H1N1 outbreak back in 2009. So in 2009, the H1N1 influenza virus infected about 60 million people in the United States. And the CDC estimates that it uh, contributed to the deaths of about 12,000 people in the U.S. And today, kind of in contrast, COVID-19 has infected 100,000 people worldwide and killed about 3,000 people worldwide. So a pandemic of COVID-19 uh, hopefully we never get there, but because that would involve millions of people being infected and many more deaths. And so I think the entire healthcare community 
is committed to working as hard as we can to make sure that that doesn't happen. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Dr. Robert Citrenberg. He is an infectious disease specialist at Advocate Lutheran General Hospital in Chicagoland. Dr. Citrenberg, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Do you uh, agree with the assessment uh, offered by Dr. Binnaker? We're looking for a second opinion, I guess. I think part of the problem is the statistics are all over the place. Right. They seem to be subject to interpretation. I'll, I'll start with mortality rate. We have no idea what the actual mortality rate is of this disease. We're reports anywhere from you know, 0.5% to 5%. Uh, and a lot of this has to do with we don't know what the denominator is. We don't know how many people are infected, and you can't calculate a mortality rate unless you know how many people are infected. And in this country, we don't haven't tested nearly enough people to know what the denominator is. So it's very likely that the true mortality rate is significantly lower than being reported. Uh, on the other hand, let's just say, for example, the mortality rate of this disease is uh, 1%. That means that if 10 million people get the disease, 100,000 will die. So even though the mortality rate doesn't seem that high, if the virus infects a lot of people, you can see staggering numbers of deaths from it. Uh, so I think there's, a, there's some different ways to interpret the statistics. Uh, and as we get more experience, I think we'll be able to be more precise in our predictions. It's a uh, you know people uh, dealing with something unknown. Uh, fear takes over, and restraint is in short supply, uh, even shorter supply than masks. Uh, I mean, and and you know when you set off panics, I, uh, just an extreme example of this. But uh, this story yesterday: forty-four people in Iran died of methanol poisoning mistakenly thinking that downing bootleg booze would ward off the coronavirus, uh, and this despite the fact that alcohol is banned in you know, the Islamic Republic, effectively. Uh, but there were rumors going around that, this, that bootleg alcohol would kill the virus, and a bunch of people uh, uh, overindulged in the bootleg liquor and died as a result, as a result of it. So sort of the, the hysteria that, forced, that drives some people in one direction to the other, again, this is an extreme example, but we're seeing... Uh, that sort of thing happen here, too, with some of the behaviors we see from people with respect to, uh, you know, lesser things, masks and Clorox wipes and the like. Absolutely. And I I think it's so important in these situations to always remain calm. Panic never helps any situation. But to trust the science and trust the scientists. I saw, I think, an image yesterday of a woman somewhere in this country spraying down her kid with Lysol after he came home from school. And, you know, this is just um, crazy. The hoarding is insane. Uh, the the home remedies that are circulating on the Internet now about gargling with salt water and all these other things are, are crazy. I think we need to just stick to the facts. Uh, the facts do seem to be changing, but um, I think we have to just really only listen to the scientists, and these are the ones who are are helping us. The the person that I listen to most is Dr. Anthony Fauci, who Mm -hmm. is the top infectious disease doctor in the country. He's brilliant and calm. He's a great combination, uh, and I think that's the kind of person we should be listening to, uh, not all these other 
crazy people with these crazy ideas. Well, and and so one of the issues, I want to get your reaction to some data we do have to try to provide some comparison, even though, as you point out, we don't have the denominator with coronavirus, COVID-19, so that's a problem. Uh, Tom Bossard, former Homeland Security uh, advisor to President Trump, said we're about 10 days from our hospitals getting creamed, was the word he used. And I, and I, I read that, and I understand that the reporting, the, 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 the number of cases that have been reported could be a small fraction of the actual number of people infected. But I read that, and then I look at the CDC's numbers on flu this season, and I see 34 million flu illnesses reported by the CDC since October, 350,000 hospitalizations. And before coronavirus, there was no discussion of any of that, putting any sort of strain on our healthcare infrastructure. But now coronavirus at its current level or where it could be in 10 days is going to decimate our healthcare infrastructure? Well, you're right on on, on, on both points. And, and the first about influenza, you know, I've been reading these articles uh, the last few weeks the headline is killer virus. Well, influenza is the killer virus. That's been our killer virus for years and years. And on average, 30,000 people die every single year from influenza in this country, and it never seems to get any headlines. I wish uh, every time someone died from influenza, that would be a new story as well, too. Uh, I think that would actually help people understand just how important influenza is. The, the problem is with the coronavirus is if you look at the, the actual numbers right now are low. The number of infections are low. The number of uh, death rate, the number of deaths are low. The challenge is to try to predict what's going to happen a week from now, a month from now. The concern is that there may be exponential growth in the number of cases, and if that happens, then it theoretically could overwhelm our healthcare system. Sure. We don't seem to get exponential growth of influenza. It's a relatively stable number every single year. But it's the exponential growth, you know, like, you know, you told two friends and they told two friends and they told two friends. All of a sudden, you can overwhelm the healthcare system. I think I've been paying close attention to what's happened in northern Italy where that whole health system is decimated uh, because of this. It's not a guarantee or a certainty that will happen here, but it's a possibility. I think that's what we have to be mindful of is the the possibility that that could happen. Anything's possible, right. I mean, those, those things are possible, certainly. And uh, also, it's possible the virus mutates. I mean, I'm, I'm not the doctor, you are, but it, it, I've, I've read this. And so you, you don't know. You're sort of, you have to start from all these assumptions when you're trying to make predictions in a dynamic environment that changes on, on, on the hour. And so it just seems to me like a fool's errand um, to not exercise some restraint and just go methodically with what we know to be true as we know it. Uh, I, I completely agree with that. Uh, it's just it's always important to just be as scientific as we can in these types of situations. I, I want to uh, when we come back, I want to uh, continue this discussion of the comparison between flu and coronavirus and also uh, loop in a couple of questions that were raised by investigative reporter Cheryl Atkinson. I wanted to get your take on more with uh, Dr. Citrenberg right after this. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with uh, Dr. Robert Citrenberg. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. He is an infectious disease specialist at Advocate Lutheran General Hospital in the Chicagoland area. 
And uh, we were talking about the comparison flu, the number of people who died as a result of influenza A and B, the number of people hospitalized uh, compared to coronavirus. Uh, One other thing, too, because you talk about the vaccine for coronavirus and Dr. Fauci saying unlikely to be until next season, if this is going to continue to be part of our flu season. uh, So next year. Um, but but one thing, too, I think is lost on people is that, the you know, get your flu shot, get your flu shot, get your flu shot. Yeah, OK, fine. But the flu shot is no fail safe either. CDC reporting that the 2019 uh, 2020 vaccine is estimated to be 45 percent effective overall and 55 percent effective in children. So that's good news. That's effective for a lot of people. And that's great. But it's not 100 percent either. It, yeah, it's not near anywhere 100%. Some people feel like the flu shot may not prevent you from getting the flu. It may prevent you from getting seriously ill from the flu. Um, the other advantage, though, or that, that makes flu a little bit less concerning is that we've been exposed to it year after year after year. So we all have some sort of our own immunity to the flu that may, uh, that may help us as well, may prevent us from getting really sick. Um, the... Um, that may help prevent us from getting really sick. Uh, but we, none of us have any uh, immunity or protection against this coronavirus because we've never seen it before. And I think that's the concern, too. And that also may explain why it seems to be more contagious than the flu right now, because none of us have any what we call innate protection against it. Um, Cheryl Atkinson, uh, writing in The Hill, thehill.com, investigative reporter, she raised some questions about quarantining, too, because this is, again, another way, another thing that perhaps is just oversold. In other words, it, it doesn't make sense, uh, sure, when you can do it and when it can be effective, the idea that this is a panacea. And it seems like the way that we discuss this is always, well, that's that's what's going to you know fix everything. That's what's going to make everything all right, like flipping a light switch. And it's just not that way. And she points out that self-quarantining, even quarantines generally, um, have been ineffective in previous iterations uh, or in, in previous examples of such a, a viral outbreak. 2003 outbreak of SARS in Toronto was deemed both the quarantine was deemed both ineffective and inefficient, according to an article published in the Canadian Journal of Infectious Diseases and Medical Microbiology. Public health analysis it, it concluded that at least 25 times more people were quarantined than was appropriate. The quarantine was clearly ineffective in identifying potential SARS patients and only 57% of people quarantined were compliant. So you have the the voluntary compliance issue as well in a free society, which adds to the difficulty. But but the idea of self-quarantining or government-directed quarantines being uh, the uh, end-all, be-all, not true either? Yeah, I think that the whole concept of quarantine, especially, and I think the important thing you raise is compliance with quarantine. Quarantine's been controversial since it was ever first discovered or put into place, whether or not it actually does anything. I think the more important concept here, and we're hearing a lot about this in the last few days, is social distancing, which is the new buzzword. That's different than quarantine. That's not asking people to remain in their homes. What we know about this virus, and actually every virus, is that they're, you know, in order to transmit the virus from person to person, people have to be in close proximity. And so what social distancing does is it keeps people away from each other, and it involves the cancellation of or preventing large gatherings of people. You see this now. The domino effect has started. The universities are canceling their classes. Boarding events have been canceled. Concerts have been canceled. 
I just heard today the Chicago St. Patrick's Day Parade right. has been canceled. So social distancing actually has been proved to be effective in curbing epidemics. Uh, and I, because you're keeping people away from each other. If you can't cough on somebody and you can't touch somebody who's infected, you can't catch the disease. Uh, and that's different from quarantine. I think social distancing is going to be much more effective in curbing this outbreak than is quarantine. Uh, based on what we know to be true, again, at this point, um, what is your assessment of the arguments advanced, including by the president, that uh, we should be optimistic that when the weather gets a little bit warmer, when the weather breaks and we're into a warmer season, the, this virus is likely to be less communicable uh, than it is currently is the same way as the flu. The basis for that statement is that, you know, coronaviruses are a large family of viruses. Uh, and most, and some of them cause just a common cold. What we know about coronaviruses, the whole family is in general, they are seasonal viruses. They're wintertime viruses. Uh, they're, they affect us this time of year in the Northern Hemisphere, and then it's flipped in the Southern Hemisphere. If you look at the world map right now of coronavirus cases, the vast, vast majority are in the Northern Hemisphere, which co- correlate with the seasonality of coronaviruses. So we are, we, while we don't know about this specific virus, we are hopeful that this one will also be seasonal. I, I doubt it will go away completely, but if there is a seasonality to it, that makes it so much easier to contain it because there's just less viral transmission. Now, the downside is, is that if it decreases in prevalence in the northern hemisphere, it's likely to pick up in the southern hemisphere with change in seasons. So that's something to be concerned about if you live in the southern hemisphere. But there probably is a seasonal effect uh, to this virus. We just don't know yet uh, how strong it's going to be, but we are hopeful and optimistic that it will help us curb the spread of this disease. And and distinguishing, again, uh, coronavirus from the flu, one of the things we've seen this season is, unfortunately, a spike in the deaths of children from influenza. And so far, coronavirus does, seems to be less likely to, uh, to to create significant health issues in younger people. Is, is that surprising to you? Uh, it is surprising, and it's, it's actually great news. Uh, for the, the most important thing is that kids, when they get influenza or any other virus, are very likely to transmit it to other people, including adults because they don't practice good respiratory etiquette. They don't cover their mouths or noses when they cough or sneeze. They don't wash their hands. So they're really important vectors of the spread of disease. And if kids are being spared by this disease, that's actually great news in terms of the epidemiology and the risk for transmission. Uh, And so that that is an important differentiation, and we're hopeful that that continues, uh, especially it's devastating when, when kids do get uh, real sick or die from influenza. So far, it it does appear, though, that kids are being spared, and that makes us all very happy. How, uh, again, cautious should we be about trying to extrapolate too much from the profiles in the nearly 4,000 people worldwide who have died from coronavirus to, at present? It's so hard to tell. Uh, we would expect that China would have the highest mortality rate of any country at least up to now, because for at least the first month of that epidemic, the Chinese government either didn't know about it or they denied it. And the 
infection, the epidemic proliferated very rapidly in China, basically unchecked. And so you would expect that they would have a higher mortality rate there because the first month or maybe even two months, they did nothing about it and nothing to contain it. He is Dr. Robert Citrenberg. He is an infectious disease specialist at Advocate Lutheran General Hospital in Chicagoland. Dr. Citrenberg, thanks for joining us. Appreciate your insight. My pleasure. Thank you. Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Uh, but this is interesting. Approval of congressional Republicans up six points since October, according to Gallup. Congressional Democrats approval now below that of Republicans. Now, neither is particularly good. Republicans, congressional Republicans at 40 percent, congressional Democrats at 35 percent. It's somewhat rare for congressional Republicans to have a higher approval rating than Democrats. Uh, Maybe that's because, in part, congressional Republicans have largely thrown in with Trump and they opposed and properly exposed the flimsiness of the impeachment case that House and, to a lesser extent, Senate Democrats put the country through from October to, you know, through February. They're none too happy about it and overreach. Huh. Interesting. And it uh, brings me to uh, another interesting piece. This in The Atlantic yesterday, a profile on Rachel Hendricks by uh, a staff writer named Kathy Gilsonon. Rebecca Heinrichs is a, a foreign policy scholar at the Hudson Institute now. She was one of the 150 or so odd Republican foreign policy experts who signed a letter in 2016 that called then candidate Donald Trump fundamentally dishonest. And that if elected president, he would use his power in ways that would make, a, uh, make, make America less safe. I made the decision based on the information I had, Rebecca Heinrichs says. She doesn't regret sending the letter, but now thinks many of the worries she and her colleagues were expressing then, warning about Trump's isolationism, the potential economic effects of his trade policies, his embrace of the expansive use of torture, among other things, unfounded, and she's thrilled about it. The uh, author of the piece notes that she's the exception in the old GOP national security world, which has uh, mostly stuck to their never Trumpism. But she changed her opinion when the evidence changed what she thought was going to happen versus what actually happened. Two different things. She uh, says, Rebecca Heinrichs, this piece is interesting, not because Rebecca Heinrichs is particularly high profile, but it gets you uh, an insight into the mentality of that whole GOP foreign policy establishment inside the Beltway. His personal flaws are so transparent that they can distract truly well-meaning people or turn people off altogether. But she fundamentally feels now that Trump is fighting for a powerful America. I've long argued for American primacy, and President Trump is, even if sometimes clumsily, defending it and fighting for it. I'm not going to yell at the clouds over his tweets or obsess over this or that expression of bad manners. But all sorts of things the Republican foreign policy establishment said they support, Trump has advanced, and yet they won't support him. So what's going on? For example, he labeled China a threat, condemned its trade practices, called for investments to counter the country's military rise, ditched a nuclear deal with Iran that many Republicans hated, most, financially devastated the regime instead. His administration has added more troops in Eastern Europe to confront Russia, ended an arms control treaty Moscow was violating. Mm -hmm. On the flip side, the Trump presidency hasn't manifested 
the nightmare the Never Trump letter signatories envisioned in 2016. They said uh, in that letter that uh, trade wars were a recipe for economic disaster. Hateful anti-Muslim rhetoric would alienate allies in the Muslim world, so on and so forth. Hasn't happened. But here's what has happened. And this is why you're not getting as many converts. You're not getting many people to follow Rebecca Heinrichs and being a convert. Far from being inhibited by the foreign policy establishment that shunned him, Trump has destroyed it. The list of names in the letter, the letters that were sent in 2016, signed, posted, published, read like a memorial wall for the party's old power brokers. Trump has barred them almost entirely from jobs in his administration and has built a new pro-Trump establishment on the wreckage of the GOP elite. And, you know, she gives a good example of of this dynamic evidence to support it. She talks about the decision to order the strike on Iranian General Qasem Soleimani. A more typical administration would focus on the risks of engendering war with Iran, hold lots of interagency meetings. And she says, does Heinrichs? And it's like, okay, but I would like to kill Soleimani. So is it just talking points and white papers that we're trying to do? It's almost like we're afraid of our own shadow in these policy areas where Donald Trump doesn't care. Heinrich says she's baffled by colleagues determined to bash a president who is doing many of the things they used to want, but can't look past the doer of those things anyway. Yeah, so she wishes uh, Trump were better in some aspects. You wish every candidate you support were the perfect person, the perfect candidate. They're not. Trump, in many, in some respects, is more flawed than others. In other respects, he's less flawed than others. But if you look at what people do, you judge them on their behavior consistent with what you said you would like them to do, then if you're somebody who is conservative in every sense of that word from a bygone era, at least going back to Russell Kirk, then, you know, yes, there are things you're going to disagree with and I disagree with. But particularly with respect to the options, how you can do what Bill Kristol did and endorse Joe Biden is beyond me. But maybe it's not about those things you would like to see done. It's about you being the one that gets to do them or gets to pull the strings behind them, the scenes to get them done. And if you're not involved, then you don't want them done. You want your status. You want your sinecure. You want your income stream. And that's really what it's always been about. Maybe that's it. And maybe Rebecca Heinrichs helped expose that with her comments in the Atlantic. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Well, with Joe Biden's big win in Michigan last night, along with Missouri and Mississippi and Idaho, he's opened up a 160-plus vote delegate lead. And we can safely decay, safely declare socialism is dead and also declare long live socialism. Joe Biden all but cementing the nomination. Uh, We'll see if um, Bernie can hold out until the weekend for a debate in advance of the next round of primaries. But I'm not sure. And a debate without an audience, not that you would have gathered uh, much of one at this juncture anyway. But uh uh, this is all over, but shouting, and I mean that literally when we're talking about Bernie Sanders. It turned out uh, that that David and Goliath uh, battle that AOC previewed on Monday. Michigan, we have Goliaths in our country today. 
the Goliath of the fossil fuel industry, the Goliath of big pharma, the Goliath of the role of big money in politics. These are powerful, powerful forces. And we are David. We are David. That didn't turn out to be so biblical, did it? Uh, David missed with his slingshot, didn't he, this go around? So uh, Biden uh, is your presumptive nominee. And, of course, he did the obvious thing from a distance last night, offering an olive branch, an overture to Biden, excuse me, to Bernie supporters, you know, to try to start to unify the party now that the uh, outcome looks fairly obvious. And I want to thank Bernie Sanders and his supporters for their tireless energy and their passion. We share a common goal. And together, we'll defeat Donald Trump. And boy, he offered that 16-second uh, olive branch without a gaffe. That's pretty impressive. Now, uh, less impressive was what happened earlier in the day. Uh, and perhaps uh, this exchange uh, will energize the Democrats who are just defaulting to Biden because they'll see some fight in him, some vim and vigor. Or perhaps if you actually listen to the substance of what he had to say, you'll just be that much less enthusiastic. And by the way, uh, the enthusiasm is not quite there, although it's perhaps a little bit uh, stronger than than I thought. Forty eight percent of Democrats and Democrat leaning voters expressed enthusiasm about Biden as the nominee. Uh, One fifth said they'd be upset, uh, you know, probably disgruntled Bernie bros. But Nonetheless, uh, just half of Democrats and Democrat leaners expressing enthusiasm. That's still going to be an enthusiasm gap as compared to to uh, Republicans who have a uh, support for Trump at a 90 percent clip. Uh, so this exchange on the Second Amendment with an auto worker in Michigan prior to uh, last night's vote tallies. Uh, I really enjoy this exchange. Uh, not just because. This auto worker put it to Joe Biden, but because when Joe Biden tried to punch down and by the way, how's Trump treated when he punches down, tried to punch down uh, with profanities directed at uh, Mr. Johnny Lunchpail American. This guy punched back. These union workers that have been working countless hours under the Trump administration, I'd like you to explain how you plan to not only keep us working, about how you intend on getting the union vote when there's a large portion of the union workers that are gun enthusiasts and you are actively trying to diminish our Second Amendment right and take away our guns. You're full of All right, thank you. Now, shush. Oh, hello. Shush. I support the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment, just like right now, if you yell fire, that's not free speech. And from the very beginning, I have a shotgun, I have a 20 gauge, a 12 gauge, my son's hunt. Guess what? You're not allowed to own any weapon. I'm not taking your gun away at all. You need 100 rounds. So when you were in Beto, no, when you said you're going to take our guns, that I did blood. not say that. That's not true. I it, did not say that. It's a viral video. It's a viral video like the other ones are putting out that are simply it was a lie. Your, your voice, you said that you're taking the gun. Well, no, he just clarified it. Wait, 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 wait. wait. Hey, take thing. the AR, your AR-14s. Okay, this AR-14? is AR-14? All right. Hey, let's you get want to tell me the same thing to There's a lot of guys. A lot of guys want to. I'm not worried. Give me a break, man. Don't be such a worry about it. You're pushing up on me. Hey, there's a lot of guys. Hey, hey. Hey, look, here's the deal. Here's the deal. Are you, are you able to own a machine gun? 
I said, are you able to own one? Under the law. Machine guns are illegal. That's great. So are AR-15s illegal. How is that in the machine guns? No, it's not. Yeah, do you need 100 rounds? Do you need 100 rounds? in America from handguns and there are what you call assault rifles. Why are you advocating for assault rifles when people are dying by handguns? Uh, I'm so glad that auto worker stood and delivered, recognizing that this guy in front of me certainly is not my better and probably don't want to be my president either. Uh, so much there. So much there. Starting with uh, Joe Biden doesn't want to take away your guns. I'm sorry. In advance of the Texas primary, when Bobby O came out for Joe Biden, what did he say? I want to make something clear. I'm going to guarantee you this is not last year's scene of this guy. You're going to take care of the gun problem with me. You're going to be the one that leads this effort. I'm counting on you. Let me make something else clear. Uh, the AR-15, which is what he was referring to when he said the AR-14, before referring to this AR-15 because he's uh, so knowledgeable on the issue, uh, has never been illegal. Never been illegal. The rifle was owned, as uh, David Harsani points out, who's written a book on the topic, uh, the uh, America's uh, Enduring History with the Gun. The rifle was owned by civilians even before the military iteration, the M16, was ever adopted. Today, it's the most popular sport rifle in America. Of course, it's rarely used in criminal behavior, and it clearly meets every criterion of legality laid out in the Supreme Court's Heller decision. But Joe Biden is talking about uh, shotguns. He's got 12 gauge. He's got a 20 gauge. He and Hunter hunt. The Second Amendment has nothing to do with hunting. The Second Amendment has nothing to do with hunting. Uh, if you go back and uh, read what the framers had to say when debating the Second Amendment, their intent was clear. The Supreme Court's rulings in Heller and McDonald, their jurisprudence is clear. The only thing unclear is everything Joe Biden has to say. This is going, as I said at the outset, this is going to be, oh, he's got the fight. He's got the spirit. He's he's not uh, diminished mentally. He's ready for the long haul between now and November. Well, if you have an able candidate running against him, which you will, particularly on this issues, and all you have to do is pick out one or two of the three or four fallacies or outright untruths that Joe Biden uttered in less than 90 seconds, in addition to the demeanor in which he uttered it, and you'll take him apart. That's what I expect President Trump will do to Creep Show Joe. Can't take it all. Gonna live my life. So slide over here. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Well, if you're of the keep calm and carry on disposition like me, whether you have to self-quarantine or get busy living, uh, there's things to do. There's things to do. So what do you do if, uh, with the time that you were going to spend at the Coachella or Stagecoach festivals, the time that uh, you're supposed to be uh, studiously paying attention online to your college coursework but uh, are easily distracted since you're not in a classroom? The uh, Irish parade in Chicago that you can't attend because it got canceled because of coronavirus and so many other such events. Well, there's two things. So on the uh, self-quarantine, the self-sequestration side of the aisle, uh, the uh, Minneapolis Star Tribune gives uh, 
a good start of uh, movies about pandemics you can watch. I don't know if that increases your anxiety or maybe decreases it. Most of them have a happy ending, but, you know, there are some uh, fits and starts, of course. Uh, six movies they uh, offer up as uh, good pandemic movies. Uh, they got a couple here, a couple I would not outbreak with uh, uh, Rene Russo and Dustin Hoffman. That was no good. Now, uh, the Andromeda strain, the uh, uh, Michael, based on the Michael Crichton uh, book, was well, that was good. Omega Man, that's good. I would even say World War Z, and I'm not a zombie movie guy. That was a that was about the best zombie movie that I've seen. Most tolerable. Uh, Contagion was pretty good too. Uh, sort of had the uh, cold wear p- p- uh, paranoia of the Omega Man, which was made three decades earlier. Um, I would say, yeah, this is, um, they also offer up cold storage, which was pretty good as well. Uh, piece of the Skylab space station fell into a small town in the desert. Uh, lethal fungus makes people climb trees and explode. <laughs> no, thankfully, uh, we're not quite there yet with coronavirus. So maybe by comparison, this will allow you to stay in that state of being calm and carrying on. The other way to do it is uh, get together. Do not uh, get in the business of social distancing. Get together with people who have uh, common interests and have a bit of a celebration. Like in uh, a small town in France over the weekend where a record-breaking, importantly, gathering of 3,500 people dressed as Smurfs occurred. Uh, the uh, mayor of uh, the town in western France, uh, in response to criticism of this event that he allowed to go forward, uh, was very Andy Dufresne-ish. We must, not st- stop. we must not stop living. It was the chance to say that we are alive. And what is a better way to say we shall overcome as the human race than to get together with your brainy Smurfs and your Smurfettes and your Papa Smurfs and have a record-breaking celebration like they did in Western France. This is the Dan Proud Show. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Prof Show. President Trump, at his briefing on Monday, talked about um, some things he would like to do to blunt the impact of coronavirus economically. And discussing a possible payroll tax uh, cut or relief, substantial relief, very substantial relief. That's a big, that's a big number. Uh, we're also going to be talking about hourly wage earners getting uh, help so that they can uh, be in a position where they're not going to ever miss a paycheck. We're going to be working with uh, companies and small companies, large companies, a lot of companies, so that they don't uh, 
get penalized for something that's not their fault. It's not their fault. It's not our country's fault. Uh, this was something that we were thrown into, and we're going to handle it, and we have been handling it very well. Yeah, and the, that wasn't uh, received well on the Hill yesterday. Chuck Schumer, you know, wants a lot more, and all of a sudden, payroll tax cuts that were stimulative when Obama did it are no longer stimulative when Trump wants to do it. Now, to be fair, the flip side is that uh, the idea that um, they weren't stimulative, which was the basically the center-cut Republican position during the Obama administration, that they are now stimulative, also is curious. Just take one step back here before we get to our friend Steve Moore, just to set the table. Payroll tax is 15.3%. 12.4 for Social Security, 2.9 for Medicare. Social Security portion of the tax is imposed on earnings up to an annual max of 132.9. Medicare share of the tax applies to all employee earnings without limit, and there's an additional 0.9% Medicare tax levied on all earnings above 200K. So the payroll tax is a tax on income, and with the income tax, it amounts to double tax. So you say, well, a tax on income, so you reduce it, and that's stimulative. You're reducing a tax on work, so you get more of it. Problem is you're doing it temporarily, and you're signaling that it's temporary so people don't factor that into their long-term decision-making. The other problem is, uh, as was mentioned in our discussion last hour with one of the candidates in the 14th Congressional District, you have – you have a social security system that is funded by that portion of that tax, and it's obviously functionally insolvent. It's a joke. It's a Ponzi scheme, pyramid scheme at minimum. And um, there's not any suggestion that there'll be any social security or Medicare spending cuts associated with the uh, reduction, temporary reduction in the payroll tax. It's sort of cheap Keynesian economics, uh, through the back door, what you won't, don't want to do through the front door. And uh, this, just as we were getting good news yesterday, the good news is that Paul Krugman predicted that we were going to enter a period of permanent recession. And so things were looking up because, you know, if Paul Krugman is predicting permanent recession, that you're about to see uh, a uh, resurgence of growth. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Steve Moore, economist, Wall Street Journal columnist, author of the book Trumponomics. Steve, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Here's what I would say, that um, I wish there was a little bit more alacrity from the administration in terms of getting a handle on the potential scope here rather than a lot of projections into the darkness. And by this, I mean, uh, you know, as of yesterday, there was a report there have been 7000 Americans tested so far. And part of this and Scott Gottlieb, Trump's former FDA director, was making this point weeks ago is regulatory bottlenecks at FDA and CDC. And that's something on the regulatory side, the administration should be more focused on so that you get more of those test kits out, so you animate local health providers to do their own testing with lab-developed tests, so you really get a handle on the scope, and you can also perhaps figure out where the hotspots are to do mitigation more quickly to the hotspots. And that hasn't been done. And to me, that's a better play than, you know, quantitative easing and a cheap ass payroll tax cut for uh, some undetermined period of time and 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 another rate cut and all this uh, hocus pocus with uh, central planning uh, central bankers. Yeah. Okay. so, Dan, uh, I kind of divide this into two, you know, two steps of action. The first is 
the public health element of this. And I agree 100% with what you just said. We should streamline the regulation process. We should make it as easy and cheap and accessible as possible for people to get tested. And once we get a treatment to get that treatment, I would, you know, I'm not an expert on this, but I would, I, I mean, this is a health emergency because people are so freaked out about it. And I would basically have uh, Trump, uh, you know, call in the reserves. And, and, you know, we have thousands and thousands of doctors and nurses that are in our, our uh, military reserve. They should be called and they should be set up. We should have treatment centers and things like that. So and, and streamlining the regulations, you're 100 percent correct on that. What I'm saying is what the economic response should be. And I favor two things right now, a suspension of the payroll tax. Much, much more importantly, the Fed has to it has to massively infuse dollars into the account. We need dollar liquidity. We need it immediately. So they the fifty billion, the fifty billion, the fifty billion so no, far no, no, is no, not no. enough. That's, that was a, that was a good start, but it has to be much, much. Look at what's happening. Prices are crashing right now. We are in a classic deflation. And how do you fight of deflation? You get more dollar liquidity in the economy. There's a massive rush on dollars all over the world because whenever you get an event like this, everybody buys dollars. You've got to get more dollar liquidity. The Fed has to do whatever it takes to get prices to stop falling. And that is much more important than a payroll tax cut. That's the single most important thing that has to happen. And the Fed, once again, is asleep at the switch. And as I said in my column, you know, I don't regret not being on the Federal Reserve Board. But right now I do, because if I were on the Federal Reserve Board, I would be shouting from the rafters, get dollars into the economy by either, you know, cutting the interest on reserves to zero, getting, uh, you know, maybe a QE where we're buying government bonds that puts dollar liquidity in the economy. Because if that doesn't happen, you're going to see continuing reductions in prices and a a deflation is really, really bad for economy. It shrinks an economy at a time when you need more dollars, not less. Yeah, I mean, I hear what you're saying. And and the the problem, right, of course, is you have like politics and the American psyche intersecting with sound economics. And usually politics and the American psyche wins out, even if it results in bad economic policy, which is essentially what I hear you suggesting. And I heard Larry Kudlow suggest on Laura Ingram's show last night. Well, well, look, I'm not, I don't think, look, what's wrong with there's nothing wrong with cutting the payroll tax. What's wrong with letting people keep their own money? I mean, well, well, I would, well, well, no. But, I would be against. I would be for a payroll tax no, anytime. No, no, no. But, but, but. Yeah. Well, well, sure, sure. Cut it permanently then. I mean, the point is that that this is this is uh, hokum, right? This is not. Uh, it, it will not do what it's advertised to do. And the question is, does it is it perceived as responding to panic with panic, or is it perceived as a stabilizing event? Well, and that's see, a, that's. I, a, I don't know what the markets will say. I think both, both from a political and policy point of view, you want to go big. You want to uh, economically, you want to overreact to this now, not underreact to it because the downside risks of a complete economic crash, you know, and that, that might be one in five, one in 10, one in 20, but you don't want to take that risk. You want to get out and, and politically, my advice to Trump is take every possible step necessary. So, and by the way, I would, you know, if I were Trump, I would have a speech tonight, nationally televised speech in prime time. I would call for the payroll tax cut. I would call for the Fed to take action. And what I would do is I'd look right in that camera and say, Nancy Pelosi, I want a suspension of the payroll tax until the coronavirus is over. And I want you to get me a bill on my desk in 48 hours. No politics, no partisanship. Get me the bill. We can get this extra money into people's paychecks starting next week. I think that would be a very positive step. I think there's a, this is a bit of a confidence game, too. I think that would be no question. It is. No question it's a confidence game. That's that's what it largely is, actually. 
But I mean, wouldn't, exactly. But wouldn't you say? Wouldn't you say that uh, dis, you know, despite the, uh, the hemorrhaging uh, on Monday uh, and the cl- the clawback yesterday, that the markets are working effectively? This doesn't look like 2008. Well, look, I mean, I, I just I haven't checked in the last half hour, but the Dow, the, the futures were down 800 points this morning. I, I mean, look, I'm re- I'm worried about. You know, the psychology of this sell, sell, sell. By the way, the one piece of advice I give investors, you're crazy to sell your stocks right now. And I'm not saying we've hit, we haven't hit bottom. You know, as I said, the futures are at 800 points right now. But I am saying, you know, three, five. I mean, Paul Krugman is completely wrong. As soon as the, as soon as the virus is contained, whether that's in three weeks or three months, then all of a sudden the economy is going to roar back to life. The stock market is going to come back to life. And, and these prices are pretty low right now, especially for the blue chips. So, you know, my one advice, don't sell low, people. That's what people, people always make that mistake in a panic sell-off. Uh, you know, at least hold on to your stocks, especially if it's a retirement fund or an education fund that you don't need the money for three or five or ten years. All right. Uh, Steve Moore gets the last word. Economist, Wall Street Journal columnist, author of Trumponomics. Steve, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Have a good week. Bye. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show and uh california governor gavin newsom apparently uh hasn't gotten the memo from uh schumer and pelosi Fredo's brother, Andrew, who's the governor of New York, that you're supposed to pillory the administration when it comes to the coronavirus response, regardless of the merits of any particular aspect of it. This is Governor Newsom responding to his conversations with the administration officials, including Vice President Pence, with respect to how the administration handled the repatriation of passengers from the coronavirus-infected Grand Princess cruise ship. Over the past couple of days, President Trump has said that he would prefer if none of the passengers aboard these cruises landed on U.S. soil. Did he mention any of that to you in your conversation? Yeah, we had a co- we had a private conversation, but he said we're going to do the right thing, and you have my support, uh, all of our support. Uh, logistically and otherwise. So before he made those statements publicly, I had a private conversation with him around 4.30 uh, West Coast time, uh, and he said everything uh, that I could have hoped for. Uh, And we had a very long conversation, uh, and every single thing he said, they followed through on. So I'm I'm just not interested in in finding daylight uh, on those statements because uh, every single thing, his administration, and it starts at the top, uh, including the vice president, uh, has been consistent with uh, the expectation that we repatriate these passengers and we do it in a way that does justice to the spirit that defines the best of our country and the state of California. Oh, boy. Cut and paste that for a campaign commercial, huh? A, a socialist like Gavin Newsom, California, no less, saying nice things, uh, which I, I assume are accurate things. That's, he felt compelled to say them about uh, the administration and uh, how they handled the Grand Princess cruise ship matter. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by 
Christopher Bedford. He is senior editor at The Federalist, vice chairman of Young Americans for Freedom, a board member at the National Journalism Center, and the author of The Art of the Donald. I see what he did there. Christopher, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So uh, your piece uh, at The Federalist is an interesting one, uh, talking about some of the reasons, the political aspect of this. We just spoke with Steve Moore about some of the economics, but there's a political component to the economic decision-making being made, too, of course. But you suggest there's a, a couple, three reasons why coronavirus, depending on how this plays out over the next couple of weeks and couple of months, could really be um, sort of a, a, the, the referendum question for the November election. I think it will have a major impact um, unless unless we avoid the worst of it. With anything like a pandemic is People who warn about pandemics beforehand are called fear mongers, and then afterwards people are accused of not having done enough. So it's a very difficult spot to be in if you're in governance like the administration is, especially with such a divided country as it is. First, if it gets to a point, as it has in basically every country it's gotten to so far, where there are, people have to go to hospital beds and we're filling hospital beds and there's a triage of supplies and who's able to get the ventilator masks and who is not. These are the kind of decisions that can lead, unfortunately, to death. And it's the United States is underprepared for it. We don't have enough hospital beds. We don't have enough ventilator masks to deal with a with a respiratory pandemic. So that kind of, how the administration handles that when it gets to that peak level is going to be crucial and leave a very lasting impact with the American public. Not only that, but there's going to be a lot of politics here. And the president has to be careful with how he crafts this stuff because the Democrats are typically, uh, with the exception right now of Governor Newsom, to attack him over his response and downplaying something and saying that it's not going to happen can be good if it doesn't happen, but it will not be good at all if it does, because then the president will have been filming campaign ads, basically, for the Democratic opposition. Finally, there's the economic impact. Uh, There's the economic impact in that the market has been plowing along at a very great rate for the longest stretch in U.S. history, more than the dot-com boom. And there are strong signs right now, unfortunate signs. There is trouble ahead in the decline in business, the cancellation of conventions, the hundreds of millions of dollars lost in cities like Austin, Texas, with big, big festivals canceled. All of this is going to come crashing down uh, right around the year that he wants to run for re-election, which will put a lot of the, a lot of what he's built and Republicans have built in the last couple of years on the line. Well, and I know this is a fool's errand, you know, trying to predict, are we going to have worst case scenario, best case scenario, somewhere in between, True. and then trying to assess what that means politically. But, but, but there is this dynamic, too, of uh, the virus uh, having uh, more of an impact in certain areas as as compared to others. We see this around the world. And because of the decentralized nature of our system in America, we could very much see what we're seeing right now, which is a new Rochelle, New York and Seattle, Washington have real outbreaks. And a lot of other areas of the country don't. It's relatively contained or mitigated. And, uh, you know, so part of this, it seems to me, the American people will be doing a little bit of comparison contrast. Nobody can just snap their fingers or single handedly stop the virus from spreading. But if it's seen as, well, we did a heck of a lot better job than than uh, Germany, than England. Uh, we did a heck of a lot better job in the Midwest than they did in Seattle, Washington or New York. It seems to me that sort of middles the issue, too, and maybe depoliticizes it a little bit. That would absolutely. And that would also, of course, show that the worst case scenarios, which are Currently predicted uh, to me at about a one-third chance that we hit a serious, overwhelming pandemic in the United States uh, in a very bad way. 
that if it, if that doesn't happen, then that would be fantastic. The uh, I know that people are reacting differently all over the country. For example, in Washington D.C., people aren't really shaking hands. In Boston, people aren't really shaking hands. It's there's been a lot more social separation in general. But in Chicago, where one of my colleagues is right now, and a lot of your viewer listeners are, people look at you funny if you aren't shaking hands or if you're using Purell all day. It's a uh, and, and same thing with uh, someone I just met with a group from Wisconsin that they're shaking hands and acting like everything's normal. There's obviously a level of worry that's different in, in, in different areas. It, and how all this will play out, it, it, none of it could really matter in, in, in the end game. But we're going to find out in the next week or two. Yeah, and, uh, if this if this virus gets bad. Yeah, and 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 some of it is sort of you know. Uh, Slight variations on culture, cultural norms, uh, different regions of the country. Some of it is related to the extent of the outbreak. You know, for example, uh, today, Seattle announced uh, no major gatherings, 250 or more people. And uh, so that would be, you know, like professional sports and things like that. Well, that's that's not happening in Chicago. That's not happening in a lot of other cities. And the other thing I think that's important here, uh, and even some Trump supporters like Michael Goodwin over the New York Post are making this point. Trump needs to depersonalize the coronavirus as some sort of personal front or attack on him and just focus on being and presenting which the, that which he seems to be doing, which is relying on respectable and knowledgeable public health officials like Tony Fauci, like his Surgeon General Jerome Adams, uh, medical professionals to uh, be taking the lead and informing the decisions that he makes. That's exactly right. And to me, it seems so obviously dangerous, the game that the president's been playing with this. It's it's generally considered a risky move politically to couple your political fortunes with the stock market's fortunes, because the stock market is often outside of the control of any one man or any one legislature and is is at the whims of a huge amount of things. But even more unpredictable than the stock market is the spread of a of a of a global virus that we don't fully understand yet. The president to depersonalize that and do that rapidly it would be very good. He is Christopher Bedford, senior editor at The Federalist, vice chairman of Young Americans for Freedom, board member at the National Journalism Center, and author of the book, The Art of the Donald. Christopher Bedford, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. So for now, more than a decade, Joe Biden has been riding Barack Obama's coattails. And he did again to victories, a key victory in Michigan, as well as Missouri, Mississippi, Idaho yesterday, to all but cement him as the nominee, presidential nominee for the Democrat Party this go around. And uh, one of the ads that was featured, as much credit as Jim Clyburn has been given in South Carolina for turning Joe Biden's fortunes around by the helping to increase the margin of victory in South Carolina that provided momentum going into Super Tuesday. Uh, This ad uh, since Super Tuesday that Joe Biden has been featuring in a number of states with Obama saying very complimentary things about Joe Biden. I think it was on the occasion of him presenting with the Presidential Medal of Freedom that AOC calls a sacred matter. Uh, Okay, Uh, Joe Biden's commercial Barack Obama on Joe Biden. We all know that on its own, his work 
does not capture the full measure of Joe Biden. When Joe talks about opportunity for our children, we hear the father who rode the rails home every night so he could be there to tuck his kids into bed. When Joe talks to Gold Star families who've lost a hero, we hear another father of an American veteran, a resilient and loyal and humble servant. The best part is he's nowhere close to finish. It's a good commercial from the perspective of Biden. Uh, and the, the, Joe Biden really is the candidate who features the most authentic relationship with the most popular person in the Democratic Party still to this day. And uh, so when Bloomberg or Bernie tried to impersonate it, it fell flat. When Biden used it, it rang true or at least a lot more true. And uh, the question is, can he ride a nostalgia for Obama back to the enthusiasm he needs for the kind of turnout he that uh, he must get in order to win in November? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Grady Means, who's a contributor to The Hill, Washington Times and San Francisco Chronicle, served in the White House as a policy instant, uh, policy assistant to VP Nelson Rockefeller. Grady, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on today. Well, what about that? Uh, certainly uh, leaning on uh, Barack Obama's kind words and I thought effective ad and uh, the uh, sort of the collective Democrat establishment able to uh, stop Bernie Sanders in, in his tracks and basically end this race as of last night. But but is, is that enough for Biden to recall Barack Obama and his role there in terms of generating the enthusiasm, the enthusiasm that he needs and the turnout that he must get? You know, a couple of things, Dan. One is that I'm not sure Biden's uh, uh, attachment to Obama is really what's powering him forward. Um, um, I think people are afraid of Bernie Sanders. They got more and more to know him, you know, calling him a um, Democratic socialist is way underestimating Bernie's vision. He's more of a more of a Leninist than a, than a socialist. But uh, so I think people were, in general, afraid of Bernie and went for Biden. In terms of the uh, in terms of the Obama uh, business, Obama must be scratching his head at this point. I mean, in the Obama White House, they they tried, tried to keep Joe kind of away from things for the most part. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, I, I can't remember. I remember Secretary of Defense uh, Robert Gates, uh, you know, who served, yeah. you know, for forever. Um, you know, in his book said. You know, Joe got it wrong on everything. You know, national heroes like Stan McChrystal, who was a real national hero, pretty much said uh, Biden was an idiot uh, in Rolling Stone. So I think uh, Joe is, is way overplaying his hand. Uh, you know, bless him for finding an old clip of Obama saying kind things about him. Uh, but frankly, when The New York Times called uh, Elizabeth Warren a storyteller, quote unquote, uh, I think uh, Joe Biden might even fall in the category of even bigger storyteller than Elizabeth Warren. But the advantage he has to uh, individuals like uh, in, in in Obama world, maybe even to some extent Clinton world, is that he's an empty vessel and he can be directed if he can stick to the script. He, he is an empty vessel. Uh, that's a pretty dangerous uh, person to have out, uh, you know, facing, uh, you know, serious debates, facing Trump. Uh, uh, the empty vessel begins to look pretty empty after a while. I mean, you know, most of uh, most of, uh, of Biden's uh, story, his origin story, you know, uh, Scrappy Joe from uh, Scranton. I mean, he only lived in Scranton until he was 13. You know, Lunchbox Joe. I mean, he's never never carried a lunchbox, never worn a hard hat, never worked in a factory. He's been on the public payroll as member of Congress since he was 30, uh, nearly 50 years. 
So, you know, when you scratch a little bit deeper, uh, the empty vessel, you know, looks a little rusty inside. So I, I this didn't come out during the uh, during the uh, uh, the primaries because the Democrats were being very careful not to totally destroy a person who might actually become their nominee. Getting into the general election is a whole different ballgame. Uh, when we come back, I want to pick up uh, right there, getting into the general election and whether or not Biden can unify the party. More with Grady Means, contributor to The Hill, Washington Times, and San Fran Chronicle right after. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof. And this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And in Pennsylvania last night, after his victory in Michigan was secured, Joe Biden did the obvious thing and made an overture to. Bolshevik Bernie Sanders and his supporters uh, a call for unity now that the race is effectively over. And I want to thank Bernie Sanders and his supporters for their tireless energy and their passion. We share a common goal and together we'll defeat Donald Trump. We'll defeat him together. Yeah, and there wasn't even a gaffe in that 16 seconds, so that's pretty good for Joe. Uh, But here's the problem. Um, 48% of Democrats and Democrat-leaning voters expressed enthusiasm about Biden as the nominee, according to a new Huffington Post YouGov poll. Um, That's not a ton of enthusiasm, Grady Means. Uh, We're talking to Grady Means, contributor to The Hill, Washington Times, and San Francisco Chronicle, served in the White House as a policy assistant to Vice President Nelson Rockefeller. He's still still got it. And oh, by the way, here in the same survey, 21 percent said they would be markedly upset, which I suspect are mostly Bernie bros. So is this a guy that can not just unify, but excite the party enough or the combination of him running against Trump, excite the party enough to get the turnout he needs? I think it's going to be very hard. I mean, the uh, uh, in the uh, 2016 election, upwards of 10 percent or more of the uh, Bernie supporters actually shifted over to Trump in the general election. Uh, the party has uh, moved so hard to the left, and uh, it's uh, uh, a good chunk of it's so hard uh, anti-establishment that, uh, frankly, the two anti-establishment outliers were both Trump and Bernie. And uh, it's not inconceivable that during this election, uh, Bernie supporters will do two things. One, I would uh, not be surprised to see a, a tremendous amount of commotion at the Democratic Convention, uh, which is not going to lead uh, Biden well into the general. Um, and uh, I wouldn't uh, be surprised to see a lot of the Bernie supporters uh, either sit it out or some even shift to uh, Trump. Uh, I think uh, I think Biden's going to have a, a very very difficult problem, even if Bernie comes around and says kind of things about uh, uh, Biden uh, uh, being pressured, of course, by the Democratic establishment to get on board to defeat Trump, which uh, is one of their primary goals. And you, you wrote a piece in, in The Hill uh, just a week before Super Tuesday uh, talking about uh, a third party may be the only answer to uh, Bernie Sanders and, uh, the, uh, and the Socialist Spice Girls or the squad, as Nancy Pelosi calls them, the, 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 that socialist base of the party that's not going away, even though Bernie may be. Yeah, I think uh, uh, the third party is a possibility. I, I suspect that uh, uh, Bloomberg, uh, one way or another, 
may uh, may feel today he wished he put his money into a third party rather than rather than his ill-fated uh, his ill-fated run. I mean, it's conceivable. I think it's more and more unlikely, but it's certainly conceivable. Bernie could form a third party. Uh, he certainly has the sustained support among a big enough uh, chunk of the electorate across the country uh, to do it. I mean, he may do a calculus to say that he could, uh, you know, lock up. He could, he could uh, uh, put the general election uh, uh, into the House for a final decision. None of those strategies work. Uh, the way in which the votes will work in the House uh, strongly favors Trump, as it turns out. So I think the Democrats are stuck. I mean, it's it, it's it's moving to the point which I would call checkmate. Uh, where I think uh, Bernie, in many ways, uh, uh, kind of checkmated the Democrats uh, uh, by putting them in a very difficult position that Biden's inherited. And uh, Trump may have done, uh, checkmated everybody, uh, because uh, for just the statistics you outlined, it may well be that uh, the Democrats aren't excited. Biden will be hard to get them excited. Biden's a very brittle candidate. He starts yelling at his people at his own rally. Yes. He calls them names. Yeah. He's kind of... He acts kind of crazy sometimes. So that, you know, that's not going to do well when it's under the microscope of a general election. So how much validity do you put into the idea that's you know, circulating that you've got uh, Hillary Clinton waiting in the wings? She's got her Hulu documentary up and running and she's doing interviews with Fareed Zakari on the weekends and all the things to sort of keep her hanging around, hanging around in case uh, Joe Biden really falters. And and is uh, especially at this stage. Barack Obama's resistance to endorse Biden a function of um, uh, contingency planning, or is it just a function of him wanting to wait to the convention to be the seen as the great unifying force to bring everybody together? I doubt if there's any real strategy for any of them, frankly. I think they're all sort of puzzled, stuck. You know, they see that they see the trap they've fallen into. Uh, They may be hoping that Biden falters, that they have an opening for either Hillary or Michelle Obama. Uh, you know, the, these sort of things are floating around everywhere. But at this point, it looks like the, um, the, the powers that be in the Democratic Party have decided to go all in for Biden, cross their fingers, hope for the best, which is a terrible position for them to be in. To, to resurrect Hillary late in the game, uh, you know, at Night of the Walking Dead. And uh, it's hard to imagine they'd really go for that. Uh, it's also hard to imagine that uh, Michelle Obama or others would want to get into this. I mean, Trump, uh, Trump's hands are getting stronger and stronger. Uh, so it, it's very, it, it's, it's very difficult to understand why anybody would actually want to do that strategy rather than trying the next time around, trying the next time around for someone like Michelle Obama. Yeah. It, it, that's been a theory too, that this was uh, all hands on deck to stop Bernie because he, he, uh, you know, isn't part of the, ruling class effectively and they would and and i've seen this happen at the local level in illinois where republicans which now basically cease to exist as in california new york a few other states but uh in illinois uh we would rather keep our little sinecures and not be in power and not get our nominee elected than we would to take any old nominee and get him elected but jeopardize our status and the argument is that uh, that's where a lot of democrats are they don't want to be in the position that the that the Republican Party was put in. So many Republican Party regulars were put in by Trump's election, which is their status and their livelihoods were forever changed because they weren't part of this outsider's crew. They were the insider crew and the insiders want to stay the insiders at all costs, even to their own party. Well, I think, you know, this uh, better than anyone, uh, but uh, certainly uh, in California, in Illinois, other parts of the country, 
the Democrats have splits within the party. Um, there's a there's a group that's uh, it's uh, named a lot of things. Some people call them business Democrats. Uh, tend to be more moderate and uh, tend to tend to be um, uh, very uh, upset and uh, becoming more resistant uh, to the high tax, uh, uh, high regulation, anti-business uh, uh, approach of the uh, far left uh, progressive Democrats. And so there are splits occurring, and within those splits, when they run the numbers, uh, they probably are more conservative in terms of their strategy for the general election. He is Grady Means, contributor to The Hill, Washington Times, San Francisco Chronicle, served in the White House as a policy assistant to Vice President Nelson Rockefeller. Grady, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Take care. So keep on rocking me, baby. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. So many aspects to this uh, coronavirus, COVID-19 story. The public health impacts, first and foremost, the impacts on economies, on markets, uh, the president's handling of it, the uh, politicization of it, uh, the disparate uh, impacts on various countries, some handling it better than others. Compare Iran or China to, say, Singapore, Taiwan, as we've talked about in the show. Italy, of course, now, too, probably in the Iran-China category. Uh, And then there's also the media. The media, which from the beginning has sought to induce hysteria. And I I say sought to induce. It's purposeful. And I'm glad to get some backup on that conclusion from uh, none other than Dr. Drew. Is there a Dr. Drew in the house? There sure is. And uh, he's not talking relationships to CBS News. He's talking about how shameful has been the media's reporting on the coronavirus outbreak. So you've seen pandemics over the decades. How does this one compare with everything? A bad flu season is 80,000 dead. We've got about 18,000 dead from influenza this year. We have 100 from corona. Mm -hmm. Which should you be worried about, influenza or corona? 100 versus 18,000. It's not a trick question. And look, everything that's going on with New York cleaning the subways and everyone using Clorox wipes and get your flu shot, which should be the other message, that's good. That's a good thing. So I have no problem with the behaviors. What I have a problem with is the panic and the fact that businesses are getting destroyed and people's lives are being upended, not by the virus, but by the panic. The panic must stop. And the press, they really somehow need to be held accountable because they are hurting people. Hurting people. I have a problem with some of the behaviors, too, whether they're media-induced or not. Uh, you should be able to resist the, the uh, uh, effort to whip the flames of frenzy. Like, I heard that they're selling those uh, halos, you know, those cones you put on your dogs, put around your dog after he, has, after he gets neutered so he doesn't uh, gnaw at the stitches. Selling those for humans to keep them from touching their face. Okay, th- that's signaling uh, of people who are dead from the neck up. It's, you got to be responsible for some of your own behavior. But Dr. Drew is right when he says the media has tried to melodramatize this at every turn. Every opportunity for drama by the press was was twisted mm-hmm. in that direction. Let me give you an example. So the World Health Organization is out now saying the fatality rate from the virus is 3.4%, right? Every every publication from the WHO says 3.4%, and we expect it to fall dramatically once we understand the full extent of the illness. 
no one ever reports the actual statement. Right. They, they go 3.4%. That's 10 times more than the whatever, five times more than the flu virus. And uh, yeah, it's going to be a little more flu, probably. That's a good example. I think there was it was a concerted effort by the press to capture your eyes, and in doing so, they did it by inducing panic. There, there is. Listen, the the CDC and the WHO, they know what they're doing. They contain pandemics. That's how they know how to do it. Mm-hmm. And they're doing an amazing job. Amazing. And the, me- and the media is being irresponsible and reckless. And I couldn't agree more. This is the Dan Prophet. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danprofshow.com. Website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. One of the outgrowths of the coronavirus panic is a renewed discussion about both uh, global supply chains uh, when it comes to corporate America, uh, whether or not it makes more sense to onshore much of the critical components of those supply chains and border security. Remember border security when that was a big issue still is. Uh, and despite the Democrats trying the open border Democrats trying to say, Oh, you, you can't stop a virus with a wall. No, but you can stop people who have the virus from coming in. Uh, that may make some sense. VDH Victor Davis Hanson made this point uh, last night on Fox you know, when China knew that there, this virus was spreading in January, there still were uh, doing you know, hundreds of flights a day from China to the U.S., sending tens of thousands of Chinese to and fro China and the U.S., despite knowing that uh, there was potential exposure to Americans because these because of the virus being spread. So, you know, our, our wonderful trading partner there and also, again, highlighting the need for some sort of system to check people coming into this country, both generally speaking, just as a matter of course, as well as specifically in times of crisis. But you can only respond in a time of crisis if you've built the infrastructure to respond. Uh, So how uh, how critical is that and how much, frankly, I mean, the politics of this, too, because there's politics that abounds. Uh, The politics of this plays right into uh, Trump's message from candidate to president. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Tom Holman, former acting director of U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Tom, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Sure, thanks for having me. So um, give us your assessment of the border security piece from, um, you know, basically the time that uh, President Trump uh, put uh, the travel ban in in effect uh, when the virus became known to present what we're doing to uh, stop the spread or mitigate the spread of the virus through border security policies. Well, look, I think I think the travel travel ban was an excellent decision, but you know, travel bans for those who are coming to the country illegally, right? So we still have an issue with those who come illegally between the ports of entry. Mm-hmm. If you look at the Border Patrol updated stats now, uh, as of two weeks ago, they haven't updated the stats last two weeks. They have arrested 323 Chinese nationals trying to enter the country illegally between the ports of entry, and that's just for the Chinese. You know, we can't inspect people. People get to the border, and you know, a lot of people get past the border patrol. Not everybody's arrested by the border patrol. There's a large population that border patrol simply 
doesn't catch. So the real concern is what's happening between the ports of entry. We already know they arrested 323 Chinese. How many didn't they arrest? And, you know, anybody can have this coronavirus at this point, as we know, it's in Mexico. And, you know, when I was ice director, just so people know, this, is, this goes beyond the coronavirus, right? When I was ice director, I remember we had one case of a man that was arrested in Texas, uh, crossing the border illegally. He had a strain of TB that was resistant to any treatment we had. And uh, we kept him in attention for months, working with the Texas Department of Public Safety, CDC, trying to figure out how to treat this person. And after a few months, they, they figured out how to treat him, and we held him in custody for a few more months. Now think, well, if he, what, what if he wasn't arrested? What if we didn't have him in custody? He was in one of our cities or, or attending a college or, or whatever. Diseases cross that border illegally every day. So I'm with the president. president says the board of all will help. The head of CDC says he doesn't see it. Well, the head of CDC needs to put a green uniform on, get down there, see how many people they arrest, enter the country illegally, and how many of these people are sick. CDC Director uh, Redfield, with all due respect, I mean, he just doesn't want to get involved in a political discussion or he has a particular political position on the issue of border security. But, I mean, it, it, how obvious is it? This is, this is like, uh, so straightforward of course you need to know who's coming into your country in a period where you're on the the potential precipice of a pandemic. I mean, what kind of public health official would argue with that? Well, here's something we really need to be concerned about, because right now, even though the decision has been stayed by the Ninth Circuit, uh, we're hoping the Supreme Court makes a decision, because right now the Ninth Circuit is looking, toward, uh, looking at ending the Remain in Mexico program, the Micro Protection Protocol, which those families and those people that claim asylum have to wait in Mexico for their hearing. If they find that to be illegal and they force the government to end that program, we're talking about another surge at the border of families and adults who are going to be released into the public because there's just there's only 3,000 family beds available in the United States, and there's only so many detention beds. So we're talking about a huge population are going to come across that border. And again, once they start doing that, the cartels take advantage and they push these large groups to turn themselves into border patrol in one area. So they can move bad people and people that don't want to be caught through another area. What? This is going. This is a national security. This, this is beyond a health security crisis. This is leading to a national security crisis of, of immense proportions. And 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 as as front line, the front line of defense in, in so many respects. Um, what about the testing kits and uh, the ability of border security to uh, and to, to to be. Uh, in in conjunction with public health officials testing individuals as they even as they attempt to come into this country legally so we know they may to have check out all the other boxes but they need to check this box too infectious disease yes and and, and, uh, and they are stepping up inspections of those that are coming through the port of entry they are stepping up inspections of those entering illegally but my concern is that we had back in, in you know, beginning of the year, January, February, March, April, we had unprecedented numbers. And many of these people are not arrested. They're not detained. They're not screened. You can't screen somebody you don't arrest. You can't screen somebody you don't, you can't, right. that gets by you. And this is a concern. And when that Remain in Mexico program goes away, that's just going to increase not only those that turn themselves into board toast, now we've got to deal with them. And can we screen in time before the release? Because, you know, like a, a child going to be detained in 72 hours of border patrol custody before it can be turned over to ORR. We're talking about a large population of those that enter illegally when the border patrol is, you know, the, when the border is very vulnerable during a family search because border patrol actors are tied up with hospital runs and, you know, changing diapers and making baby formula and, and doing all that special needs for the families. 
And, and during the crisis, you know, 50 to 60 percent of border police are no longer online, which means many, many more people going to come across that line that they're not going to be arrested, they're not going to be inspected. And look, if you're somebody, if you're somebody in Mexico, or you're somebody in Central America, or you're somebody in Chinese, China that got smuggled to Mexico, if you don't contract this virus, if you have this virus, you know, part of this population is going to want to get to the United States to the to, to the finest medical, you know, uh, uh, system in the world. Where else to be if you're going to be sick? That's why it's in the United States, and it's going to be those sort of people that take advantage of that. What, what, what's your assessment of how much progress has been made during Trump's administration in advance of getting the resources to the border that are required to address the problems that you're describing? Well, the good thing, this president has got the border number. As of right now, the border numbers are down 75 percent from the high in May. And that's because of the moves this president takes. You know, his, his deal with Mexico is on a migrant protection protocol. Mexico stepping up in force on their southern border and northern border. You know, the deals with Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, you know, making them such safe third countries. And this president has taken, you know, great steps to get it down 75% from his high without zero, you know, zero help from Congress. They haven't offered up anything, of course, so they want this to be an issue. The courts aren't helping them, so they're litigating the president everything everything he's trying to do. So thank God we're at a seventy five percent down right now because of this president. However, we're on shaky ground again because of the Ninth Circuit Anti Migration Protection Protocol. That is going to be a huge hit to security in the United States. And I've said this many times. What is Congress doing? They can simply there's three loopholes they can close. We've been begging them to close them for three years. If they close those loopholes, you, you you're going to you're going to at least decrease the border crossing by eighty percent. They can do it. They have the power to do it. But they hate this president more than they take the responsibility to secure this border and protect Americans. They want this to be a 2020 election issue. They want this president to fail. It's just really pathetic. Yeah, I mean, obviously, look at the speed at which they moved to put together eight and a half billion dollars for combating coronavirus for for containment and mitigation efforts. But they won't look at first order problems like a porous border. So it tells you a lot, doesn't it? It tells you a lot because under Obama administration, I was third in command in ICE. When we had the first family surge in uh, FY14 after FY15, they threw so much money at us, we didn't know what to do with it. We went from 100 family beds to 3,000 family beds. That's when we, that's when they built the so-called cages. They want to refer to cages under Obama administration. I mean, the money come, come fast, and, fast and furious on us to deal with the crisis. Now, under this crisis, they're nickel and diamond the president. They, they, you know, that's what led to the whole detention. Everybody said detention conditions are deplorable. It's because they refused to fund additional HHS funds to build more family facilities, more children facilities that we asked them to do. They were given warnings by the president, by the secretary, by myself, that here's what's coming. You need to fund this or we're going to get into a situation. Sure enough, the only time they woke up is when detention conditions got so bad for illegal aliens, and all of a sudden, they, you know, now they care. Right. Yeah. They didn't care prior to it. But once they're infected, the health and security of an illegal alien, they're quick to act. So if they want to know why, you know, why 31 percent of women are dying, they want to know why children are dying crossing the border. They want to know why detention conditions got so bad a year ago. It's because of their failures to act. This is this is a, this happened on their watch and their failure to do their job. He is Tom Homan, former acting director of U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Tom, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks for having me. Keep Keep up the good work. Appreciate it. Take care. I got my mind set on you. I got my mind set Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Well, big day in Me Too world. A judge sentenced Harvey Weinstein to 23 years in prison today for his convictions on rape and sexual assault. Miriam Haley and Jessica Mann, the two women whose testimonies effectively convicted Weinstein, gave emotional victim impact statements uh, in court before uh, the judge delivered his sentence. Weinstein said he was remorseful. Uh, went on to talk about his charitable deeds and then said he was confused as well. He was facing a maximum of 29 years in prison and got to 23. And again, he's still facing a number of sex-related criminal charges in L.A. So Harvey Weinstein is going to be in prison for the rest of his life. And uh, you know, based on what we know to be true and the charges for which he was convicted, I'm not shedding any tears. It seems wholly appropriate. Here we go again with the Me Too preening from Hollywood and also trying to address some other areas of what you would think would be under the Me Too umbrella and haven't been and distinguish serial predators of a violent nature, disgusting nature, if everything the human stain is alleged to have done is true. And, hey, he was convicted beyond a, uh, by, beyond a reasonable doubt by Jervis Pierce for rape and sexual assault. So that's good enough for me. But compare that to um, one of the three tenors, Placido Domingo, sexual harassment allegations against him last summer. He was sidelined by the L.A. Opera, that a company he helped found. There was an investigation done. The results of that investigation released yesterday. Ten accusations that Domingo had engaged in inappropriate conduct with women over the course of three decades that they deemed the investigators to be credible. The level of discomfort reported by the women varied, ranging from some women stating they were not uncomfortable to others who described significant trauma. Uh, There was also, if you remember, the charges against him, you know, the charges surfaced, then you get a year later. The charges resurfacing again in response to findings, in this case, by some independent investigative body agency. Domingo, who co- cooperated, sat down for an interview with the investigators, denied the allegations, unwanted contact, said that all his interactions were consensual. The report added that investigators often found Domingo to be sincere in his denials, but found some of them to be less credible or lacking in awareness. You know, time had passed him by is the way I read that. But anyway, the uh, allegations against Domingo included that he had retaliated against women who rebuffed his advances, retaliated against them professionally. And importantly, the investigators found that uh, there was no evidence that Mr. Domingo ever engaged in a quid pro quo or retaliated against any women by not casting or otherwise hiring the woman or women at the L.A. Opera, especially since casting and other hiring decisions are complex, performance specific and determined by multiple people. That's a big distinction because then it gets into a little bit of, I mean, Placido Domingo's in his uh, 70s, and this is not to excuse boorish behavior, but we don't really have the details on it. What we seem to have from this report, without a lot of specifics, touching, persistent requests for private get-togethers, late-night phone calls, sudden attempts to kiss them on the lips. That's about the specificity, at least as reported by the Associated Press. So that is not... Harvey Weinstein. That is not Bill Cosby. And again, here you need to distinguish. And also uh, you need the details so that uh, Placido Domingo's had this storied career as one of the great tenors in operatic history can respond point by point. I suppose he did in this interview, but we don't have those responses. And now you get to the 
the, the discussion of what sort of a disciplinary action will be taken. It doesn't sound like we have anything really criminal here, particularly when you're talking about allegations of this sort, uh, uh, a desire requesting uh, a private get-together, late-night phone calls, and you're going to go back to 1986? Even attempts to kiss, that, to kiss women on the lips, inappropriate, not defending it, trying to put it in context and distinguish it from the, the serial, violent, uh, predatory behavior of the likes of a Harvey Weinstein or a Bill Cosby, people convicted of serious, violent crimes against women. Different. And it seems to me we don't make those differences. One other note, the new documentary from Corey Feldman, the, the My Truth, The Rape of the Two Corys, was screened in L.A. this week, bringing to lights the name of the men Corey Feldman says sexually assaulted him and his friend and co-star Corey Haim, who has now since departed drug overdose. Among those, Charlie Sheen. Charlie Sheen has now been named by Corey Feldman as having raped Corey Haim when the two co-starred in the movie Lucas. And Feldman's ex-wife, Corey Feldman's ex-wife, confirms, by appearing in the documentary, backs up Feldman's claims about Sheen and Haim, saying that Corey Feldman had shared that with her uh, when they were married. Charlie Sheen at 19 raped Corey Haim at 13. That's the allegation of Corey Feldman. And this goes back to the interview we did last week with Tiffany Fitzhenry. Go to danprofshow.com or uh, look at my Twitter feed at danprofshow if you didn't catch the Tiffany Fitzhenry interview about this culture of pedophilia in Hollywood. She's the one who broke the Ricky Garcia story. This was a Disney star that was allegedly taken advantage of, sexually abused by a number of individuals, both on the management agency side as well as um, efforts by uh, actors, producers in Hollywood at these parties when he was you know, a teenager, preteen, actually. Uh, th- this is now uh, a pending matter uh, in court. But uh, Tiffany Fitzhenry is an aspiring screenwriter and actually pretty successful showrunner to this point, to the point that she decided to dedicate at least part of her career to exposing what she came to understand was the Hollywood culture. And so uh, and she said, by the way, in our discussion, she said that this whole aspect of the Hollywood culture uh, is is going to come out that Hollywood is going to get taken apart by this. And if, you know, what is alleged just in the Ricky Garcia case, not to mention what Corey Feldman has alleged about Hollywood during his time as a child star and others have too, uh, you know, against the backdrop of Michael Jackson, the Neverland documentary, if there is the systemic culture of pedophilia, then that hopefully will and obviously should rock Hollywood to its core. That will make the even the, the 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 most disgusting crimes of the Harvey Weinstein, Harvey Weinstein's of the world, uh, pale in comparison. If what she's suggesting is true, is actually true, and there's enough corroborating evidence to uh, support the claims that are being made by uh, those who are alleged to be victims. I mean, that, that, and, and it's interesting too how how little coverage. That aspect, a little attention the Me Too movement pays to this aspect, the abuse of children in Hollywood. It's a lot, you know, men in power and starlets. It's uh, men in power and uh, their 
colleagues. Uh, it's not so much uh, this whole area where there have been a lot of allegations. There have been a number of convictions over the year, high profile convictions of child sex abuse coming out of Hollywood. And there isn't this uh, same energy behind unearthing who and what is going on in this space, maybe because too many people know too much. That's sort of what Tiffany Fitzhenry suggests. And hopefully sooner rather than later, we'll find out if what she's saying is true. This is the Dan Prop Show. You're listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, uh, taking a break from all things coronavirus and 2020 presidential politics. This uh, good piece from our friend Steve Malenga over at the City Journal. In March of 2009, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell wrote a strongly worded letter of protest condemning Delaware's effort to revive its football betting lottery. He was concerned that it was going to create new gamblers and uh, a... Uh, negative societal impact. But then the Supreme Court intervened and uh, ruled as unconstitutional the act passed by Congress to limit the spread of sports gambling. So now you've got uh, 14 states that have legalized sports betting and can host stadium betting lounges. So, for example, at Soldier Field in Chicago to see uh, Mitch Trubisky put up uh, 10 points. Over the first four weeks or so, you can uh, salve that uh, offensive football, offensive in both meanings of that word, by uh, betting on other teams or betting on the the Bears or betting against the Bears, sitting around, lounging around in uh, sports gambling at Soldier Field. I wonder how Virginia McCaskey will feel about that. Anyway, the NFL is a casino sponsor, fantasy sports sponsor. That would be FanDuel, casino sponsor Caesars. Individual teams can sign their own deals with casinos. So it's no longer protect the shield as far as Roger Goodell is concerned. That's quite a turnaround in a decade, isn't it? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Steve Malanga, contributing editor to City Journal, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Quite the turnaround. Yes, Steve? Yeah, you're right. Uh, it's what a you know what a turnaround. Back when the, you know Delaware was one of the uh, four states that even before the Supreme Court ruling, they had essentially been what's known as grandfathered in. They had had at one time sports betting, and so they were allowed to have it, even when Congress banned internet sports betting <clears throat> back in the uh, 1990s. And uh, and so in um, 2009, Delaware was looking to bring this back. And Goodell wrote a, a letter to the governor at the time, Jack Markell, saying, you know, if you legalize sports betting, you're going to create new gamblers as the state attempts to maximize any revenue found in this. And then he said the negative societal impact of additional gambling cannot be minimized in a community. <laughs> That's what he said in 2009. <clears throat> Nine years later, when the uh, Supreme Court said that what Congress had done was not constitutional and the states have a right to do this if they want to, suddenly Goodell and the NFL has jumped into this. And, and in just really two years, less than two full years, 
we've really seen the NFL and other leagues go from being worried about gambling to being willing to tolerate gambling to now embracing gambling. And I don't think you can say anything more about it than when stadiums start to have this on site, <laughs> when you can go into a lounge, you know, and do this, they have really embraced it. Uh, and so suddenly those community impacts don't seem to wor worry them even more. And the reason that's significant, and this is one of the reasons I wrote this piece, is because around the rest of the world, especially in Europe, a lot of other countries have also, European countries, legalized sports betting more than a decade ago. And we have seen the societal impacts, the fallout, because what happens when you do this is you normalize gambling among the young. So even though the young are technically prohibited from gambling in a lot of these places, gambling has spiked among, and gambling problems has spiked among the young in European countries like uh, England, for instance. Yeah, you have more people gambling, you're going to have more problem gamblers, right? And and you uh, uh, document uh, what the uh, British experience is that could be instructive for us. Yes, absolutely. And it's not just if you have more people gambling, but what happens is that when the state says it's okay, and when your favorite NFL team is promoting this, and, and, and has a, 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 literally a casino sponsor and an online betting sponsor, then you are saying to young people, this is okay. This is, you know, and so, <laughs> you know, one of the amazing things about these surveys uh, that I quote in Europe is that about 40% of kids, teenagers, and they're mostly boys doing this, mostly young men, about 40% of them who do it say they do it in official legalized settings which is not officially legal for them. So they're somehow evading whatever restrictions are on, and they just think it's fine because society has said this is fine. Well, right, and so you're going to have some states uh, that go the way of uh, Illinois and become mob economies, you know, drugs, legalized drugs, legalized gambling. When we come back with uh, Steve Malanga, I want to uh, discuss this uh, dynamic of expanding gambling exacerbating profligate spending by government rather than fiscal discipline. More with Steve Malanga from City Journal when we come back. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. We're back with City Journal Steve Malenga. We're talking about the misrepresentation, the misdirection, and the misspending of states like Illinois, New York, New Jersey, where gambling has been expanded over the decades in various forms, the most recent being sports gambling, thanks to a Supreme Court decision. Uh, and, you know, with the next uh, pillar to fall, prostitution, perhaps there's been uh, resolutions, I know, at least at the city council level in New York City, to contemplate the legalization of prostitution, of course, right? Uh, all this is uh, governments at every level trying to get through the back pocket or from the back pocket, what they can't get through the front pocket in terms of their citizens as revenue generators for the state. So at some point, we're just going to have, you know, malls, strip malls in places like Illinois and New York and New Jersey, uh, where you got your, your check cashing station, your uh, packaged liquor store, your brothel, your... Uh, video poker hall, your sports betting parlor, 
in your marijuana dispensary. That's what we're going to call economic growth. What it's really a mob, it, what it really is, is a mob economy, isn't it, Steve? Yes, again, you know, in Illinois, what, what what we have now is that some states are simply desperate for revenues, and Illinois is right at the top of that list, and so they'll do anything. And you can you can make a rationalization and a justification, uh, and when you're desperate for revenues, you know, basically, all you know, I mean, any kind of restraint just goes out the window. Even though, and this is the thing, I've written about this before, I don't mention this in this particular piece, but obviously we now have, if you count lotteries, uh, a four-decade experience with legalized gambling. And there have been many, many studies, and one of the studies that was done looked at states that legalized gambling for the revenues, which is basically why all states legalized them, and we have a whole bunch of them that did it back in the 70s, for instance, uh, the lottery being the first thing. And one thing the study found is that states that legalized gambling the first have among the most, the, the worst budget problems and, and have among, uh, over, historically have the highest taxes. So New Jersey and New York are the two biggest examples I can think of off the top of my head. They both said when they, le- when they created the lottery, we're doing this. You know, so that we don't raise taxes, so that we have money for education, so that we yes. have money for seniors. That's the way those things were sold to people. These two states over the years have become the two highest tax states in the country, among the two. The lottery has done very little. You know, property taxes in both of these states, which fund education, are through the roof. They're the high, you know, among the highest in the country. And, and yet the lottery was pitched to, to people as fun, something that would fund education so we wouldn't have to you know, raise t- taxes. So essentially it, it doesn't work. They, 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 it's just found money for these states, and they well, wind up burning the money, if you will, you know? Well, and Illinois uh, is uh, even worse than those states, and it was the same thing in the, mid, <laughs> in the mid-1980s when Illinois uh, created the lottery. We'll never have to have another discussion about funding K-12 through education <laughs> again because all this revenue is going to be pushed into funding schools, and of course, what do they do? They do uh, a bait and switch. So we got that money there. So we'll take general revenue fund money. We'll do something else with that. We'll continue to expand the state. We'll continue to spend beyond our means because we have this new revenue stream. And then this becomes the culture, uh, the kleptocratic culture, the mob economy culture, where you're just always looking for new revenue streams from in a parasitic way. And so, so you go from gambling to marijuana to more gambling to prostitution to whatever else. There's nothing that's off limit. Right. And back in the 80s, the Orange County Register did a uh, study and a, a series about what had happened to the gambling money from the California lottery, which was you know, dedicated to education. And they concluded that a majority of that money, that surplus new revenue, had been captured by the teachers in higher contracts and in higher benefits. And ironically, today, of course, California can't pay its can barely pay its pension bills. California school districts are, are struggling because the pension system is a mess because of the higher benefits that were granted, and the money essentially went to that. So yeah, the you know, real the real just, problem gamblers here are the political classes in these yeah, states. Exactly right. right? Exactly and, right. Exactly. I mean, one of the things that the, that the, that legalize that advocates for legalized gambling, of course, would never say out loud, is that states are filled with lots of special interests. State capitals are filled with special interests. And as soon as you basically enact something that creates surplus revenues, they just capture a large part of it. And that's just, you know, that's, and, and, and 
you know, then and you still you're still stuck with stuck with the social consequences. I, I want to go back to the implications here too, since you uh, since we have a, a you know a body of uh, evidence, data to examine and and make some uh, inferences about what could happen in America with this expansion in, into sports betting. Uh, going back to England, j- just in terms of the, the the numbers or the multiples that. Uh, manifested themselves after you had some time for sports gambling to take hold and probably more more soccer there than like football here yes, but it's yes, a, exactly. the, the, the same dynamic and just yes. you know how, how that how that impacted uh, uh, the wide swath of British society you know along with this the England set up much like the United States the, you know uh, betting you know the states set up all kinds of betting agencies and they set up a kind of a gambling monitoring system in England, and within five years of uh, legalization, it, wasn't, it was more than legalization. It was something that actually just allowed expansion. But within five years of this law that was passed, the number of problem uh, bettors in England increased from 200,000 to 450,000, according to this uh, British gambling prevalence, prevalence survey. And uh, it's estimated that about 36,000 of those problem gamblers are underage uh, gamblers, and about 36,000 more young people are cat- classified as at risk, meaning they're they're, they're exhibiting you know a kind of behaviors, regular gambling that that means they they pr- could be hooked. Well, you there's know, you know what I mean. They're, yeah, they're yeah, vulnerable. right. Yeah, you're you're sort of traveling down a dangerous road, and yes, right. and and yeah, there's another aspect of this too, and this was the promise of the riverboat casinos in places like Illinois, uh, you know, a couple of decades ago, uh, which was uh, there'll be economic development engines for you know decaying river towns in the Rust Belt, and of course that hasn't come to pass either. The idea that you were going to go to one of these decaying towns to go to the casino, and then you were going to stay I and mean, make a weekend of it, and a bed and breakfast, and and restaurants would pop up, and None of that happened. People are in and out. It is it is a, a, a really a uh, it is a, a, a vehicle for wealth transferred. It's not a vehicle for wealth creation. He is Steve Malanga. Uh, he is the contributing editor of City Journal and senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Steve, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. And, uh, you know, just a footnote here, too. I, I'm not opposed to gambling. I like playing cards and I, I, I'll, you know, gamble on sports if I'm in Vegas or whatever, too. It's just the way it's sold is so dishonest. That's the thing that always gets me. It's sold every way it's sold by the politicians is so dishonest, and uh, uh, and, and and that's the problem. You're just uh, it, it's a scam that your government is running. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. University of Illinois fighting Illini more than a decade after they eliminated their mascot, a mascot, Chief Illini Whip, you know, because, of course, of insensitivity to Native Americans. This was at, well, this was even late in the game, but uh, this was after you had all sorts of nicknames and mascots uh, renamed and rebranded around the country, right? St. John's Redmen became St. John's Red Storm, University of Miami, Ohio Redskins, renamed uh, Red Flash, right? All of that sort of thing. One of the only schools that survived, I guess, the Fighting Irish is fine. The Fighting Illini is fine. Let's see. I mean, uh, Washington Redskins famously at the professional level uh, have survived, but most haven't. A Chief Illini away didn't, 
And uh, they're still in the business, student government, nothing better to do. A, a decade later, plus, more than a decade later, doing a buyback of all Chief Alinawick merchandise that University of Illinois alum had purchased over the years. Yeah, yeah, they want to eradicate it all. You got to eliminate this uh, unseemly period in the history of uh, the great University of Illinois. Well, now they have the possibility of a new mascot. And I don't know how this mascot works if you keep the same nickname. Because the idea came to Spencer Halsey in a doodle during a physics discussion at U of I. She sketched a belted kingfisher, which is a blue and orange bird she saw many times while fishing on her family's farm outside Kinmundi, Illinois, which is southern Illinois. The uh, effort to find a a new mascot has been underway for some time. Some lame attempts like Alma Otter. (sighs) Yeah. The kingfisher, however... Miss Hulsey's Kingfisher was put to an advisory referendum. Students passed it by a margin of 625 votes. Now, of course, they don't have authority to change the mascot, but uh, their advisory referendum, those results leveled up to the uh, honchos at U of I, all those multimillionaire pensioners soon to be uh, to make a decision. Uh, the, uh, argument for, we can see a king, Kingfisher dunking a basketball. We can take pictures with it. We can have something to interact with. This is, um, a way for the university experience to be enhanced fighting a line And it's a fighting bird. Here's the other thing though. This could seal the deal for the Kingfisher. Uh, the Kingfisher would also be the lone big 10 mascot to be overtly female. See the male version of the species is blue and gray while the female is blue and orange, which are U of I's colors. So uh, we're in the business now since this is uh, starting to receive uh, starting to to get to fever pitch, trying to come up with a a better nickname and or mascot for a line and perhaps twin the two. So one makes sense with the other. My thought, since Illinois has led the nation in out migration the last five years and probably will for the foreseeable future, instead of the fighting Illini, they're fleeing Illini, fleeing Illini. And then uh, the mascot, the moving van would be the mascot. The fling Illini. And you could present that pictorially. Think about like the Sooner Schooner. Yeah, the Sooner Schooner, something like that to, to start the start the contest. Fling Illini, the moving van is the logo for the University of Illinois. Another great a testament to a once great university and a once great state that is no more. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.